I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, our experience with pain can vary greatly depending on the source, injury, or tolerance. But amazingly, our bodies can also offer natural relief. The brain modulates pain continuously to maximize our survival because there are times when being in pain is not protective. For example, there's a bear in front of us, we turn around, we step on a nail. Well, our pain system is pretty smart and it will suppress the experience of pain until we're safe. And later, how would you describe your pain? Flickering, quivering, pulsing, throbbing, beating. When patients were invited to choose words, the groups from which they selected words could help a physician predict which medicine might be most successful. The right to living a pain-free life. That's coming up on Life Examined. A 10 on a hospital 0 to 10 scale would indicate the most excruciating pain, the kind of pain that hopefully none of us will experience. Physical pain, however, is very much part of human life and something we're all pretty familiar with. Historically, some cultures viewed pain as part of God's plan, a message from the divine. By the 17th century, scientist René Descartes theorized that pain was in fact a type of mechanical response coming from a sensory source in our bodies. This gave way to today's comprehensive understanding of how pain is received and modulates through the body via the spinal cord to the brain. The intensity and type can vary. A headache or toothache is very different, for example, from the visceral pain of a cut or a fall. And the biggest advance is in the relief. From aspirin to oxycontin, modern painkillers have made living with pain, at least for some, manageable. In his book, The Right to Pain Relief and Other Deep Roots of the Opioid Epidemic, co-author Mark Sullivan explains our common misconceptions and what the medical community is getting wrong when it comes to diagnosing pain and managing pain relief. Mark Sullivan is professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Washington, and he joins me now. Welcome. You're welcome. I want to start with a really historical look at how we understood pain kind of culturally and In your book, I mean, you say that up until 1500, pain was primarily understood as a religious problem. Can can you tell us more about that? Yes, there was uh, really a pervasive uh, sense that everything in the world happened for a supernatural reason or a reason relating to God, meaning that pain was part of God's plan Uh, Pain helped prepare people for uh, their real destiny, which was in heaven. And most importantly, with that framework, uh, pain relief just didn't make sense because it was thwarting God's plan to uh, balance pain and virtue and uh, prepare you for the afterlife where things really happened this theist understanding of God's interaction with the world was replaced by what's what's called deism. And so the usual way of describing this is that God made the world like a watchmaker made the world and then left it to run according to its own principles. And that became dominant between 1500 and 1700. So it began to make sense to not only look for God's intentions in the world, but to also look for what are the principles by which this watch, meaning the world, is running. Mm. And uh, that set the stage for the scientific revolution that began around 1700, where instead of a seamless network of divine reasons and intentions, the world was now run by a seamless fabric of causal interactions that didn't require divine intervention and could be studied and understood by scientists. Mm. So then continue to walk us up into a more modern era or where you begin to see big shifts in the way that we understand pain. I mean, I think you've talked about in the Enlightenment how we're, we're thinking of the body in terms of more causal effects, but but where does the storyline continue in terms of thinking that we should be entitled, in a sense, to a pain-free life? So the most prominent advocates of that view were the utilitarians, like Jeremy Bentham in 
England. They basically tried to advance a purely secular ethics, and they said uh, very simply that pain is evil, evil is pain, uh, good is pleasure, uh, pleasure is good, and this established pain as something that should be, by all social efforts, uh, reduced to a minimum, because pain is synonymous with evil and badness, and utilitarianism uh, was no longer looking to preparation for the afterlife. It was looking to make uh, current life as pleasant and happy as possible. So with that social framing, um, pain as something appropriate, valuable, necessary in life was really downplayed. And at what point do scientists begin to have any sense of what pain really is, you know, from the body chemistry or physiological place? Is, is there any kind of rudimentary knowledge that, you know, this is a real thing and we can understand the sources of it? So here's where Descartes comes in. So Descartes, we're talking around 1660, his treatise on man with the famous picture of the boy in the with his foot in the fire, that's maybe 1664. And the notion that we could understand pain, in fact, understand it completely by looking inside the body probably originates with Descartes and, and some of his, his pals. So famously, he stated that when the boy has his foot in the fire, uh, the fire tugs on his nerves in his foot and this uh, information is transmitted to his brain and he thought that the nerves interacted with the pineal gland that translated from the nervous system to the mind that was behind the brain and almost like a ringing of a bell by a, a bell ringer, boom, there's pain in the brain. Mm. and. So we get at once a couple of ideas. One, pain is a mechanical phenomenon that happens inside the body. And famously, as uh, David Morris pointed out in his great book, The Culture of Pain, Descartes radically decontextualized our understanding of pain. If you look at pre-Cartesian pictures of what pain is like, you get a very rich context about why is the person suffering? What is happening around him? What's the context? But with Descartes, we not only get a mechanical explanation of pain, but we get the claim that that's all you need to know about pain and that to explain pain, all we need to do is to look inside the body and what happening outside the body is of no importance. Hmm. I'm not a doctor and I don't know too much, but it, it seems that Descartes was onto something there. The kind of interrelation between an injury somewhere in the body or being exposed to something harmful and that there's a signal that's pressed up into the brain. I mean, that to me seems quite advanced. It's been an extremely successful uh, approach to pain. And the notion that pain, it implies that pain will be proportional to the amount of tissue damage. Because remember, it's tissue damage that is tugging on the nerves in the foot and that determines how strongly the bell is rung in the head. That idea reigned supreme for 300 years. The only time it started to get qualified was when Melzack and Wall wrote about their famous gate control theory of pain uh, back in the mid-1960s in science. And what Melzack and Wall added is they said, you know, it's not just a simple bell that connects the foot to the brain. There's actually a gate in the spinal cord that modulates how strongly that message gets up to the brain. Hmm. And so it introduced the idea that the nervous system doesn't simply transmit messages from the periphery to the brain, but it's constantly modulating them. I went to medical school and and took neuroanatomy in the late 70s. And we were only taught about the ascending pain system that went from the periphery to the brain. And virtually all the interesting research since that time has been about the descending pain system, which goes from the brain back to the periphery. And we know now 
that the body is continuously modulating the amount of pain that we feel. And in fact, internal or endogenous opioids are very much involved in that process. That's the endorphins or enkephalins that people have heard about. And that's the internal compounds that are imitated and replaced by opioid medications like OxyContin. Hmm. Can you say more about the descending model, which is really interesting? I mean, the way I hear that is that the pain, I don't know if the word originates makes sense, but the brain is sensing something and sending signals somewhere else. Um, can, can you just expand on that a little bit? So I often tell trainees that the pain system is a lot smarter than you think it is. You know, our image of the pain system is often pretty similar to the Cartesian idea of a straight through line labeled system from the periphery to the brain. But in fact, the brain modulates pain continuously to maximize our survival because there are times when being in pain is not protective. Uh, for example, when we're fleeing from a predator, let's say we're in the woods and uh, all of a sudden there's a black bear in front of us we turn around and let's say we step on a nail just as soon as we're starting to flee the bear well our pain system is pretty smart and it will suppress the experience of pain until we're safe and in fact it's a very common occurrence that patients coming to the emergency room with serious injuries will say, I didn't feel a thing until I got to the ER. Yeah. So it is true that our pain experience is not just determined by how much tissue damage there is in the periphery, but by a broader sense of danger and safety and whether um, fleeing or protecting the injured body part is more important for our survival at the moment. And I don't know, but I'd imagine maybe there's even more nuanced understandings of this. I mean, you hear of people talking about phantom pain or, you know, something hurting in their back, but there's actually no f physiological reason that somebody can come up with. I mean, I'd imagine it can get even more complicated than even what you've described. It is, it is complicated. Currently, the professional pain community thinks of chronic pain which has always been less tightly associated with tissue damage, has three types, nociceptive and chronic arthritis is a good example of that, neuropathic, and a good example is the burning feet that diabetic patients get, mm. and then a kind of tougher kind to understand, which is called nociplastic, and that is uh, defined as having altered nociception. And the classic example of nociplastic pain is fibromyalgia, or pain that happens all over your body. So those kinds of pain are all, you know, the nociceptive ones related kind of to the Cartesian idea of tissue damage. The neuropathic one is like, oh my goodness, the wires that are transmitting pain have been damaged, and now it's not so much that your toe is hurting, it's the wires that go to your toe that are hurting. And then even more mysteriously, there's the nociplastic pain, which is the brain part of this, the receiving organ for the pain information is now, for some reason, set on high alert. And there's a heightened pain sensitivity. And that turns out to be very important in many of the most common chronic pain syndromes. So at what point culturally, or in the history of medicine, is it established that, okay, we have, a, we have a better understanding maybe of what pain is and that it's, it's, it's almost a human right to live pain-free? Because it seems to me that's kind of where we are now, that any aspect of pain that we experience is something that should be eradicated as quickly as possible. So I, I think there's a lot of pieces, some of which we've touched on already. First of all, you have to think it's appropriate to control pain. It's not God's mission. Hmm. Two that pain is bad, in fact, maybe all pain is bad, and that we should minimize it, as Jeremy Bentham argued. But then we've also set it into a medical context, mm. where it's understood as a uniquely medical and mechanical form of suffering that makes sense 
to look for a right to relief from. We don't expect to be relieved of all suffering, um, but we do, like you said, think a right to pain relief, that kind of rings right in our heads. And it has an interesting uh, pedigree, uh, back to the utilitarians, but more modern, um, think about the UN push for uh, the universal human rights mm. that was really considered to be a step forward after World War II. Uh, then we need to look to palliative care and uh, innovations by Dame Cicely Saunders in the UK, who argued effectively that medical attention should not flag when disease cannot be controlled. She said, look, we can still do something for dying patients, even if we can't save their lives or stop their diseases. And hence, pain control, separate from disease control, uh, got sanctioned. And there was a lot of enthusiasm around palliative care. And in fact, in 1997, if you'll remember, the U.S. Supreme Court considered whether Americans should have the right to assisted suicide, mm. the Supreme Court said no, no right to assisted suicide, but a number of the justices, including Sandra Day O'Connor, argued that instead, Americans, dying Americans at least, had a right to pain relief. And a lot of the early uh, innovators in palliative care also argued that we should not limit this right to pain relief to dying patients, but we should take on the bigger problem of pain in the middle of life, which is chronic pain, and consider those patients also having a right to pain relief. Hmm. I'm just curious, like, how do you sit with this as, as a doctor? Uh, like this notion that pain is bad, everybody is... Uh, should be allowed a life in which that is treated away. D do you think that that's a, a practical position? That has been a set of questions that has been very difficult for doctors, me included, to uh, respond to without something like an opioid prescription because, yeah, I think, I believe you have pain and yeah, I mean, I think it's appropriate to come to doctors and ask for pain relief. So, there's had to be a major resetting in our understanding of medicine's relationship to pain to prevent another opioid epidemic. That's sort of what our book is about, is we have to look uh, deeper than greedy pharma, deeper than lax governmental oversight to our modern understandings of, of pain and opioid medication, and specifically this right to pain relief um, it's still very hard for doctors. You know, we're like 20, 30 years into this opioid epidemic and it's still hard for doctors to respond to patients who are asking for pain relief and say, well, I can't give you what you want. I mean, it turns out that opioids don't work that well long-term. Short-term, they're great. Patient is happy going home from the clinic visit uh, but over the months and years to come, uh, things are not so good. Pain relief does not often persist and a lot of other problems come up. So you need to expand your sense of responsibility and mission as a doctor when a patient comes in and says, I've got bad back pain and I want you to take it away. Well, I'd imagine the real kind of profound mystery here is that pain is on some level subjective or at least it's conceived of by the person having it. They're the person that rates it. I mean, there is no blood test for the amount of pain that somebody feels. You can see if a bone is broken through an x-ray, but there's no way for a doctor to verify exactly what the level of pain really is. And I think that's what makes this to me, such a conundrum, I'm sure, from the side of a medical practitioner. Yes, I think that has been uh, one of the central challenges for a modern medicine that wants to turn everything medical into something objective. Mm. 
you know, real medical things are objective or objectifiable. Like you said, through an imaging test or a blood test or a physical examination. But pain, because it's subjective, remains a little bit more intangible. And we have invented other techniques to kind of quantify and objectify pain, most famously the zero to 10 pain scale that yeah. everybody's had administered to them when they're in the doctor's office or in the hospital. Where is your pain? Is it no pain, which is zero, or is it the worst imaginable pain, which is a 10? And we have interpreted the right to pain relief in terms of that scale as a right to a lower pain score. There are a lot of problems with that scale and we largely think it should be abandoned. One of the problems with it is intensity is only one of many components of pain. I mean, there's meaning, there's extent, there's chronicity, there's all sorts of things about pain that affect how much it interferes with your life. But we have decided that pain intensity is where it's at and we've trained patients to say, I have 10 out of 10 pain and I, don't, I want you to reduce it. I want an eight or a six or a yeah. four. And if you do that, you have succeeded. And if you don't do that, you have not succeeded. And this points to opioids because opioids are one of the few medications that can quickly lower a pain level from an eight to a six or a four. Mm like it does when you come out of the operating room. That's what patients with chronic pain are asking, but unfortunately the long-term outcome is not good. Mm. You know, and it really occurs to me like when I've had to go to a hospital or something and I've been in pain and one of the first things a nurse or a doctor might say is, let's see if we can get you feeling a little bit better right now. And they hook you up to an IV and administer drugs or something. But, but the idea is that, oh my God, I'm in a huge amount of pain right now and you need to take it away from me immediately. Like that's the expectation. And, and I appreciate how you're bringing a little more nuance into this that I don't think about as much with pain. Like for example, it could be environmentally triggered. You know, some people might say, yeah, my back actually only hurts in this set of circumstances or the pain comes alive here. And in that case, it's a little bit harder to make sense of or probably to treat. Or in that case, an, an opioid medication doesn't really make a lot of sense. Is, is that right? Yes. Back pain turns out to be a lot more complicated than we thought. You know, back in the early 20th century, we called back pain lumbago. It was thought to be kind of one of those inescapable accompaniments to aging, like wrinkles or, mm. you know, being hunched over. And in the 1930s, a surgeons named Mixter and Barr said, nah, actually, you know, back pain uh, often comes from ruptured discs, which are a lot like spinal tumors. And if you remove them, people get better. And that began a long, un something that we're still dealing with that much of back pain is a surgical problem, certainly amenable to surgical solutions, but also medical solutions so that a lot of opioids are prescribed for back pain. But, you know, you're hinting at something very important, which is post-surgical pain. When you come out of the operating room, let's say after your appendix being removed, lowering your pain level for a day or two while the healing takes place turns out to be much more simple and opioids do a much better job with that. And it's important to know that that served not only as kind of a, a medical, but an ethical template. Mm. You know, when we discovered anesthesia, which you take during surgery, all of a sudden the nature of surgery was really quite different if you didn't have to be Whole, held down while your arm was getting amputated, you got rendered senseless by anesthetics. And so something that seemed like inescapable pain, what we call essential pain, was recategorized as inessential. It's a, a form of pain that medicine could take away. And so this grand hope that began in the 18th century, I mean 19th century, with anesthesia for surgery, people were saying, hey, we can do the same thing for chronic pain. We can do it with opioids. Mm. 
So even though it didn't work out, it's important to realize that it was part of this grand scientific effort, starting with the enlightenment to kind of reduce pain and suffering generally through the application of science to the human condition. I mean, that's why Descartes waxed so poetic about the role of science and medicine in shaping the destiny of man. We were going to make it better. Yeah. So let, let me ask you this, as we kind of discuss the opioid epidemic and, and this crisis we still live with, do you feel that it was all actually really bad intentions and big pharma and people trying to take advantage of, of a system or, you know, like, or were the roots of it somewhat understandable? Like, these were the medications available, this was the trajectory we were on. Like, I'm just trying to get your sense of how we kind of ended up in this place and, you know, where all these pieces fit together. Well, I think there's good and bad to it. I think it's important to recognize that there were definitely good intentions to bring the insights from palliative care into the care of non-cancer pain. You know, if we can use opioids for cancer pain, why not non-cancer pain? Can we, in fact, not only reduce, you know, suffering of patients, but lower the level of pain and suffering generally in society? There was. There was a lot of ambition, a lot of hope um, about that, but there was also conniving and dishonesty and uh, almost bribery involved where, you know, the extent of our evidence for opioid efficacy was never really that strong. Um, There was... uh, a lot of twisting and manipulation of uh, regulations and uh, undermining of institutions with donations and things that the New York Times and just had a story out about how Purdue shaped the Institute of Medicine, now known as the National Academies of Medicine. Their report on pain and, and opioids were shaped by Purdue donations. So there was, there was some Uh, bad acting, but there was, like you said, I think some very high hopes and uh, good intentions uh, also present. When you now think about where pain medication or treatments could go, it, it seems that there's advances in all different parts of science and medicine, like, for example, immunotherapy and how we may treat cancers moving forward, or I don't know if this is even relatable, but mRNA vaccines or just things that are just seem really interesting and advanced. And when you look at this from a pain perspective, do you see that there are advances on the way that will be a little bit safer than opioids or what we have available now? I sure hope so. It has been uh, difficult to find non-opioid medications that have the same analgesic properties as opioids. Uh, There's a lot of things still worth trying and there's uh, efforts on the way. I mean, we certainly use uh, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, among other drugs to help treat chronic pain and I'm sure we can do better than that. I'm looking forward to more pharmacologic discoveries. Um, It doesn't look like we're gonna be able to uh, find opioids that aren't addictive. Uh, there There has been a fair bit of effort put into that. The search for what are called biased ligands where you were able to just get the analgesia or pain relieving property out of opioids, but not the addictive property. But pain relief and addiction are both linked to opioids' capacity to produce and regulate reward in the brain. Mm. So I have strong doubts that we're going to really be able to clean up opioids to the point where they're non-problematic. But I do think that there's other options. We're in an era where we need to look not only at non-opioid pharmacotherapy or drugs, but we need to understand, support, and provide access to non-medication treatments for pain too. Mm. Um, 
it's been easier with policy to reduce access to opioids than it has been to increase access to behavioral treatments for pain. I frequently like to say, every teeny little town in the U.S. has got a pharmacy. Every single health insurance plan, including the stingiest Medicaid plans, cover medications. Mm -hmm. But it's much harder to find and it's much harder to get funded things like acupuncture, massage, physical therapy, psychotherapy, all sorts of things that have proven benefit for people with chronic pain. My guest has been Mark Sullivan, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Washington, also the co-author of The Right to Pain Relief and Other Deep Roots of the Opioid Epidemic. Mark, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for speaking with me. Still to come, the totality of pain and why words fail us when we're in agonizing physical pain. That's coming up with Harvard professor Elaine Scarry after this short break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard pain physician Michael Sullivan explain that pain is complicated and its intensity is only one component. There's also psychological pain, which can be equally debilitating. So what exactly happens to us when we feel pain? Other than an expletive or a groan, why does language fail us when something hurts? Does our mental state impact our suffering? And is there a difference between voluntary and involuntary pain? Joining me now to talk about the language and many dimensions of pain is Elaine Scarry, professor at Harvard University and author of The Body in Pain, The Making and Unmaking of the World. Elaine Scarry, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. You know, I want to start talking about something uh, that you've written a lot about, which is the idea of the uh, the inexpressibility of pain, which is how we how we grasp for words and how they often seem insufficient when we think about the essence of pain. Can you tell us a little bit about that and explore the idea with us? I think it's really important. It is really important. An easy way to get hold of this is to imagine what happens if you're in the dentist's office and suddenly a drill or an instrument hits a nerve in your mouth and suddenly you see stars. And what we mean by seeing stars is that suddenly there's a collapse of the contents of consciousness. You're no longer thinking about whatever article you were just thinking about in your mind or whatever film you were thinking about or the uh, face of people around you. None of those are there. Your whole world of visual and acoustical information has just disappeared and has been replaced by what we call stars. That is just a kind of explosion. And what's happening in the mind when you suddenly uh, suffer an acute pain is very much reflected in what happens to language. It suddenly just disappears because, of course, the contents of language is exactly all those things that we just said um, no longer exists there. Hmm. The article you were reading, the film you were thinking about, the faces you were admiring, um, all of those have disappeared. And so too, with language, you no longer have the coherent content or the syntactical structure. Lots of times people find that if, let's say they suddenly hit their hand with a hammer, that they might just make a groan or a cry, or they might utter a swear word, which is very close to just being a groan or a cry. Hmm. And when that happens, what we're watching is the sudden rollback of language into the kinds of sounds we make before we ever learned language. So, you know, in that flash, in an instant, we we just watch or we witness the disappearance of language. Hmm. And that's incredibly painful for the person who's already in pain because part of the experience of pain is the feeling of you know quite awful isolation and the fact that you're you're alone with this extremely aversive state uh, no that's really well said and and it makes me think about you know this is something we all can understand 
which is almost like the totality of pain, the way it fills one's consciousness completely, that there's there's room almost for nothing else. And in a sense, when, when you put it in those words, it's it's wholly unique, but one that is so shared among almost everybody, right? Yeah, and you're right. The Civil War surgeon Silas Weir Mitchell uh, once pointed out that when you are suffering from pain, the body or the mind has the ability to turn every other sensation into a dimension of pain. So mm. ordinarily, um, a door uh, closing wouldn't necessarily sound aversive at all. And yet suddenly, if you're in very acute pain, that sound is is a kind of magnification of the pain you're already feeling. Another way of understanding the total dimension of, of pain is an observation made by the great uh, researcher on physical pain, Ronald Melzack, um, who said that you know it's not one part of the brain that's involved in um, experiencing pain. The whole brain is involved in that enterprise. Mm. Um, so it's it's and there are many other ways of understanding the totality of it, but those I think those are two important ways. And yeah, as for the shareability of it, um, we're not able to share it while we're experiencing it. If I'm right now in pain, you're going to have a hard time understanding or appreciating the the reality of what I'm undergoing. Um, but it's shared in the sense that everybody from all cultures uh, experiences physical pain, though there might be some variations in received cultural practices about how much the, the person wants to try to express it or abstain from expressing it. Are there any eras in history or movements in art or writers or just uh, cultural angles in which pain is explored in ways that you found particularly interesting? Yes, there certainly are. One thing that I think is very helpful is a statement made by Virginia Woolf. She says, uh, the merest schoolgirl, when she falls in love, has Shakespeare or Keats to speak her mind for her. Mm. But just let a sufferer get a headache and language at once runs dry. So when we have psychological pain, there are literally hundreds, hundreds of great artworks that address the, the problem. That's for psychological distress or psychological pain. But for physical pain, there's only a tiny number of, of works that take that on. And yet I need to be grateful that there are a tiny number of works. And one in my mind is um, from the fifth century Greece, Sophocles Philoctetes. Um, another one much more recently in the middle of the 20th century is the Guatemalan writer Miguel Astorius, who writes a book called Men of Maze. And I can tell you about each of those, but I should also say that in addition to artists, there are people in other realms who have contributed a great deal towards solving this problem. And I just want to mention uh, foreground the work of Ronald Melzack, who um, is not only responsible for having devised the so far most compelling account of the physiology of physical pain, but also along with a colleague um, whose name was W.S. Torgerson, developed something called the McGill Pain Questionnaire that enable, that provides patients who are in pain with a kind of menu of adjectives from which they can choose. So what, what Melzack realized was that the kind of language we usually use, usually if you go to the doctor's office and you're in pain or you go to the hospital and you're in pain, um, you're often given something that asks you to designate the intensity. They might say, choose a number between one and 10, or they might show faces that are either grimacing or um, all the way up to looking neutral and then beyond that to smiling and you choose one. And Melzack realized that all of those measures, though they're very important, are measuring just a single dimension of pain, namely its intensity. By listening carefully to the vocabulary that his own um, patients used, he realized that there were clusters of other words that patients used and that 
those words had a kind of coherence to them, that they fell into groups. For example, here's, here's a, a group that he put together, flickering, quivering, pulsing, throbbing, beating. Mm. Um, all those, he pointed out, describe a temporal on-off dimension of pain. If the pain, instead of a, being a blaring continuous signal, is has a kind of temporal on-off quality, a rhythm to it. And at the same time, those words, if, if, if you choose throbbing, that means it's more intense than flickering or quivering. So too, he took the, the cluster of words, hot pain, burning pain, scalding pain, searing pain, all of which express a thermal dimension to pain. And he has you know five or six different clusters like that. He found that when patients were invited to choose words, the groups from which they selected words helped could help a physician um, perhaps diagnose the pain uh, to see whether it had an organic or non-organic basis and might also help predict which painkiller, which medicine uh, might be most successful. He, he did that work on uh, the, the pain questionnaire in 1975, and it's very much still in use uh, across all kinds of uh, sickness and, and injury. Do you think there can be any benefits to having experienced pain. I mean, I think, for example, when you've gone through something that is so horrendously painful, maybe one side of that is a tremendous amount of empathy one can feel towards another or the sharing in the pain. Or I'd imagine for those that live in chronic pain, being among others in that place too must be quite healing. But but do you see any other angle to this? Uh, again, a more hopeful side or or not? I actually don't. I mean, mm. yes, maybe maybe there's a moment where uh, the small amount of pain could act as a wake-up call and maybe invite us to be more attentive. Uh, because you often hear people saying, oh, now, now that I myself am suffering these uh, headaches or now that I myself am in an advanced stage of cancer, I understand what aunt, you know, Mildred was saying when mm. she was talking about this. So in that way, you're right. And yet, you know, I also sympathize with uh, statements like uh, the one one artist, uh, Puisman, uh, set called Pain, the useless, unjust, incomprehensible, inept abomination that is physical pain. Uh, huh. That is that is, it, it in, inflicts so much more suffering than can provide any useful um, instruction. If yeah, it's true that in the first moment that uh, I need to be made aware that I have some you know, illness or that I've got some kind of injury that I was unaware of, it, it can be useful mm. that. I they all the alarms are going off. What's what's not so useful is you know the fifty third month of someone being in very terrible pain, and you know because we sometimes think that with chronic pain maybe people get used to it, and at least from the things I've read, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that all your resources uh, wear down. You know the longer it goes on, and mm -hmm. the harder it becomes to um to to take it on so Karl Marx once said there's only one antidote to mental suffering and that's physical pain and uh there's another companion passage from Oscar Wilde that I like very much he said God spare me physical pain and I'll take care of the moral pain myself there are certain things like moral pain or psychological pain as awful as those things are that um, we can exercise a bit of control over or a loved one or a friend or a sibling um, can actually uh, possibly intervene and moderate the psychological pain somewhat. But physical pain, it's, it's just very hard, um, as we were saying earlier, for someone to really um, intervene. So yeah. No, I, I find that really interesting. And when you reference literature, I mean, 
There are so many books or memoirs written about uh, psychological pain or emotional pain, right? Because there is the language, yeah. uh, there is the understanding and the depth. And yet, just as you say, just the lack of books about physical pain, because where do we find the language? Where do we find the communicative element there? So I, I found that really interesting. That's um, absolutely right. And, you know, Thomas Mann in uh, Magic Mountain has a character, a wonderful character named Settembrini, who's a humanist, and he's working with other humanists together to, um, to, to create an encyclopedia of suffering. And he's responsible for doing the volume on literature, but he finds that he can't do it because all literature is about suffering. And uh. what it means is it's about psychological suffering. And the reason for that has to do with this difference between psychological pain and physical pain. So with, with most psychological states or most states of consciousness, um, there's always, as many people have observed, an object. You don't just love, you love someone or you love something. You don't just fear, you have fear of something or, or fear about something. And that, if we could go through every cognitive state or every psychological state, and they would always be of or for something. And that designation of an object means there's a referent in the external world, and therefore um, it 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 can be intelligible to other people. You know, they 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 may not know the particular person I love, whose whose loss to me is causing me uh, terrible psychological pain, but they understand what it means to lose a person, and there may by small acts of friendship, people might begin to, um, to at least occupy some of that vast empty space. But with physical pain, it's not over for anything. It's, the, it's a, unique, a unique state of consciousness that has no object and therefore um, is, is not susceptible in the way that, um, you know, we're used to thinking of, of Hamlet's great distress or King Lear's great distress mm. as you know being able to be uh, portrayed in magnificent pieces of literature. Well, I wonder if you would explore this somewhat abstract idea with me. I, I keep thinking about the difference here in terms of physical pain of say voluntary pain or, or involuntary pain. I mean, I I'm someone that goes and does Ironman triathlons and rides 100 miles and high elevations to essentially put my body into a certain amount of pain because there's a certain value or pleasure that will come out of it. And it seems that it's not just me who does this, but a lot of people go out and try and stir up their feeling of pleasure a little bit in different ways to uh, have a sense of aliveness or meaning. Does that factor into anything we're saying here? Because it seems to me that humans are attracted to some level of physical pain at times. They, they are. You're absolutely right. And, you know, here's a key difference between what you're describing and the person who has, let's say, suffered terrible burns over mm. a part of her body or is suffering from a very bad form of, of cancer pain. The difference is that one of the key uh, attributes of physical pain is complete loss of agency and complete loss of consent. Mm. What you described has some features in common with physical pain, and yet you instigated that exercise, those athletic um, achievements, and therefore a key, absolutely profoundly key feature of physical pain, the elimination of agency, the elimination of consent, um, you've kept completely intact and you've even exercised it. And there are other cases where uh, besides that kind of uh, extreme exercise where people willfully accept or even um, inflict pain on themselves, for example, if they agree to have a medical procedure that is going to be painful, and for let's say that it's for some reason or another, there's not some kind of anesthetic um, available, and they agree to do it. Yes, that's that's very, very uh, hard on them, and yet their agency has remained intact. Or we know that um, women giving birth, that on the sensory dimension of pain, the, the level of pain is, is often extremely high. 
Uh, and yet, uh, when they evaluate the pain, they um, attribute to it a, a, a lower level of aversiveness because it's going to lead to something so wonderful, namely the birth of the child. Hmm. Um, and so it's accepted. And so too, people who do heroic things on the battlefield or continue fighting even when they're wounded um, are would be examples. One other example is that in some religions, people um, purposely subject themselves to um, controlled levels of pain. And note that in, in all these examples, except the childbirth example, there are um, control, you can control the pain because you can stop at any moment if you wish. Um, and so too, in the example of the religious devotee who you know, maybe uh, whips his, his or her back. And part of what can happen, because, because in the moment of suffering pain, the rest of the world, the rest of your contents of consciousness kind of spill out of your head, that prepares the religious, the ardent religious practitioner for the being available to the metaphysical plane of reality. Because suddenly all the social contacts, all his you know, disagreements with his cousins, all those just disappear um, because of what happens in the, in the presence of pain. And therefore, he's making himself available to this other um, higher level experience. But again, it's so important to stress that uh, those are all cases where um, the 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 person has has control over the pain. It's been such a pleasure speaking with Elaine Scarry, professor at Harvard University and the author of The Body in Pain. Elaine, thank you so much for sharing just your years of research with us on this really interesting topic. Thanks for the time. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And now we would love to hear from you. How do these ideas sit with you, especially those of you that have experienced chronic pain? Do you find that pain medications are adequate in the world that we live? Would you like to see more research around this subject? Chime in on our Facebook page. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next week. Take care.